Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 3. As the heavens for height, and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. As the heavens for height, and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Now for application, this proverb can be approached from two different angles. It can be approached descriptively, describing what rulers are like, so that we can be wise subjects of rulers, or prescriptively, informing would-be leaders about how to be successful in their leadership. So descriptively, this proverb is an encouragement to be circumspect in perceptions of leaders. Kings, judges, rulers, business leaders, etc. They all carry heavy responsibilities and they are making the decisions that they make based on their experience, on their goals, and the information that they have available to them. It's very easy to sit in the peanut gallery on the sidelines making judgments about things that we don't or can't know. The fact is that leaders tend to have more and better information available to them precisely because they are the person who needs the information. For instance, the CIA and the FBI report to the President and the Senate, not to your neighborhood nut job who thinks that all the, he has all the data because he read about it on an internet message board. This doesn't mean that we need to believe everything that the government says. After all, they say some crazy stuff. But it does mean that we should be wise in assessing what they say and do. Use the proper channels to oppose authorities and withhold judgment until you have the facts. Prescriptively, this proverb says that if you want to be a ruler or a king, you must grasp the fact that justice and wisdom are not static values. So a good ruler must be consistent in their approach. They must be consistently just, wise, good, and kind. However, this does not mean that they always do the same thing, because life is always changing. You cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach to life. And this confronts those who want to lead by putting their faith in a method. For example, what we need around here is more education. More education, more education. Or we need more benefits, more benefits. Or, more, or we need less taxes, less taxes, less taxes. In and of themselves, each of those could be a good or it could not be a good, depending on the circumstances. This also confronts those who think that ruling is easy. It's not. Those who think that they could change the world if only they were given the keys rarely have the 
humility to change it for the better. Good and wise leadership ought to be an earned and deserved position. And good and wise leaders are a gift from God. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please communicate. talk about the, well, it's the second movement of the Covenant Renewal Worship Service, but it's the first of the sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, worship service. It's the section that it corresponds to the sin offering or the trespass offering in the Old Testament. And this segment of, in our bulletins that we're covering today, is, is titled Cleansing because the sin and the trespass offerings were purification offerings. They were, they were sacrifices that were made to atone for sin, to atone for the sins of the worshipers, to covenantally purify or cleanse them as they approached God for consecration and fellowship. So cleansing is an essential element of worship because sin is the problem. Sin gets in the way of man's relationship with God. It has always been so, ever since the fall. God created Adam and Eve. The very next chapter, they sinned. And since the fall, we have this problem of, of, of approaching God and being solely dirtied. This is evident in many scriptural examples, but we must deal with sin. Now, sin is not a popular topic, because naming it means to look at it, to identify it. And sin is ugly. Sin is nasty. It's uncomfortable. It's vile and it's gross. Sin brings death, and death stinks. Men have a natural hatred of death, and we try to hide from it. Therefore, we minimize the cause. We lie to ourselves. We think, oh, it's not that bad. We put rose-colored glasses on when it comes to sin, because addressing sin is painful and difficult. It's a kind of death and suffering if you're going to address sin. Death, blood must be spilt. Many churches seek to give people what they want. And the result is that sin is not really talked about very much there. The focus is instead on singing praises, telling inspiring stories or testimonies, and self-help philosophy or five ways to be a better whatever. But you cannot take sin out of the conversation without taking the gospel out of the message. You cannot present the gospel of Jesus Christ without dealing with sin. It's the first step. Any truly evangelical worship service, and evangelical means gospel, any truly evangelical worship service is going to address sin and address it directly. The reason for this is that there's no need for good news if you can take away the problem. 
You don't need a gospel if you don't have sin. But the problem with that is that ignoring that there is a problem is not the same thing as taking away the problem. They actually just don't deal with the sin. They let it ride. The Bible says that there's only one way for the problem to go away, and that is through sacrifice. It's through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we're talking about our worship service. We're talking about why we do our worship service the way that we do our worship service. And we're, our pattern is from the Old Testament worship service. So let's dive into Leviticus chapters 4 through 6. And don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Because it's a big chunk, and it would be brutal. Though it is the scripture, it's, it's worthwhile. So the first thing I want to point out is that in this text... The passage divides into two main sections. The first is what my translation calls the sin offering section, and it covers all of chapter 4. And the second section is the trespass offering, or the guilt offering. And it covers chapters 5 through chapter 6, verse 7. So you've got two chapters with a lot of instructions about the sin offering and the trespass offering. And the difference between the offerings is that the sin offering was offered for unintentional sins. Sins that were not intended. They didn't realize they were sinning when they sinned. But when it came to light, they had to bring a sin offering in order to come in the pre into the presence of God. And it was assumed that they had committed unintentional sins. So whenever you came into the presence of God, you brought a sin offering. And all of the people were told to bring in a sin offering. From the priest, to the congregation, to the ruler, to the, the common people, the individual common people. So I'm going to read excerpts from chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. So there we have the priest offering a sin offering for his unintentional sins. In verses 13 through 14, now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, which, as a caveat here, we can sin corporately. The sins of America are our sins, corporately. So this is a little side. Um, now the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. And similarly in verse 22, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally, and verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally. So the, the entire congregation is addressed as a congregation, and each category of the people, the, the priests, the rulers, and the, the, the common people were addressed on how they would handle sins in their own lives. 
So the sin offering was for unintentional sins. But the trespass offering, the guilt offering, was for known offenses. For sins that people knew that they did. And for all offenses, even unintentional offenses, which required restitution. So some sins require restitution. When you sin against your brother and you steal from him, when you make it right with God, you give restitution to the person you stole from. So the guilt offering required a confession on the part of the sinner on top of the offering of the sin offering. So in a sense, the trespass offering was a heightened sin offering. It was a, 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 an improved sin offering. Uh, Leviticus 5, verses 1 through 6. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. And that's speaking of if you're a witness and, and you're called on to testify and you refuse to testify, that's sin, according to the scripture. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an un unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. So we've seen now how the offerings were prescribed for the whole gambit of Israelite society. All Israelites were called to confess sin and to repent of it and to bring the offering that was required. Priests, assembly, rulers, and individuals. And the mechanics of the sacrifice were this. They would bring the animal to the threshold of the temple. They would lay hands on the head of the animal. They would spill the blood. They would cut the throat of the animal at the threshold. And they would take, collect the blood and they would sprinkle the blood before the veil of the holy place and, and put the remainder of the blood at the, all over the, the altar. And then they would burn the carcass of the animal outside the camp. They would, well prior to that they would separate out the fat, the, 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 the incense portions. And they would, they, they would take, take the fat off of the animal and burn that on the altar and they would take the rest of the animal's carcass, which was not to be eaten because it was a sin offering, and they would consume the entire thing in, in, a, in, a, in a fire outside the camp where they were, would de deposit the holy things uh, from the temple, the ashes. And so we get this um, from chapter 4, verses 14 through, through 21. Bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bowl before the Lord, then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar, and he shall do with the bull as he did with the, with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them. But when it says he shall do as he did with the, the sin offering, he's referencing what the priest had done when he offered his own sin offering, and that's to take the rest of the bull and burn it outside of the camp. And it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. So here we have the prescribed method by which the Old Testament saints would atone for their sin. And what we see is that life must be paid for life. We have a sacrificial death, a substitutionary sacrifice. So death is a requirement for atonement, and the blood is a picture of life. By blood and no other way, the worshipers are brought into God's presence with their sins forgiven. That's why they collect the blood, and that blood then is a testament to the fact that, that life has been, been, been paid. That blood that he sprinkles at the veil that he puts on the horns of the altar, and he, he splashes all over the altar, then opens the way for the worshiper to come into the presence of God in order to be consecrated. Now this is why blood must be spilt. And it's something that I think we all here probably have a decent grasp of. We've been Christians for a while, but it's, it's good to review this stuff. It's because we are in covenant with a holy God, and sin must be atoned for. Light reveals darkness. God is light. His presence consumes anything that's unclean. It, it, he, he speaks out of fire. His fire just completely destroys. His holiness will destroy whatever comes into his presence that is not purified. And so this is, and this is really clear when we see the, the various uh, uh, times in scripture where we see theophanies or, or manifestations of God to his people, or we see his people coming in, into his presence. So in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God, the prophet Isaiah, one of the holiest people in Israel, he says this, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the, the kind of awe that we must be struck by when we enter into the presence of the Almighty God Creator who created the heavens and the earth perfectly and is perfect totally. Similarly, the Apostle John in Revelations 1, when he meets Jesus post-resurrection, glorified, has, has, a similar, it has a similar effect on him. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. God is holy, and we are not. And because he is holy, unless we come underneath the purification of the offering that Jesus made for us at the cross, we will be consumed. God, it, it's, it's, not, it's not part of his nature to allow some uncleanness in. It's not allowed. And in those two examples I gave of Isaiah and John, God gives grace. He goes to the altar and he takes uh, tongs and he takes a coal from the altar and he cleanses Isaiah. 
so that Isaiah can speak, and so that Isaiah is atoned for while he's in the presence of God. And similarly, in, in, in Revelations, uh, John says, But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Where Jesus himself offers the atonement to him. But there are also negative examples, negative pictures of what happens when unholy people come into contact with a holy God. And they should cause us to fear and tremble. As when Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, were consumed by the fire that went out from the altar because they brought unholy fire into the temple. Or when Uzzah went to study the ark as it was traveling from the Philistines, uh, from Philistia back to, or from Shiloh to Jerusalem, he stuck his hand out to study the ark because the, the, the ox stumbled. And God instantly killed him. In order to approach God, we must approach him the way that he tells us to do it. When men are brought into God's presence and survive, it's only by his gracious atoning for their sins that they can survive. And he does graciously atone, which is what Leviticus pointed to. And it's what we remember when we go through our liturgy of cleansing. So Leviticus was pointing forward to Christ, our confession of sin and, and absolution, our, our liturgy of cleansing is remembering what Christ has done for us so that we can come into God's presence. We start with our confession of sin exhortation. And there we hear some direct teaching about sin. That's the point of the confession of sin exhortation. So we've been, we've been going through Proverbs for, well, ever since I've been here, and it's been wonderful. And, and it's, it's amazing how much application there is when you're dealing with wisdom literature. But because sin touches every area of our life, there is an application against sin in every one of the Proverbs. And that's why we chose to use that, because that way we, we learn wisdom in seeing what the Proverbs teach us to address as we, as we encounter and deal with life. We're trying to be like Solomon tells us to be, and to listen to our father and our mother, to listen to our Lord and his, and his, and his word. So we, we, we start with our confession of sin exhortation, and we hear direct teaching about the sin that's related to the text. And it, that brings to memory the sins that we commit unintentionally, just like what we were reading about in the scripture in Leviticus. And it also brings to light the sins that we commit corporately as a culture or nation. And that exhortation is then followed by a corporate confession, a prayer of confession, in which we corporately confess our sin generally and specifically which we were just reminded of in the exhortation. And then the silent prayer at the end of the corporate confession provides an opportunity for each of us to confess our individual and private sins. And that's correlative to the trespass offering, as, as we learn from Leviticus. where It's, it's a guilt offering. It's a, it's a sin that we know in our hearts that it's a private sin between us and God that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be atoned for. But that's why we provide a time there 
for you to remember the sins that you've committed and confess them to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because unless you confess your sins and repent of them, you are not covered by him. The wisdom of this is evident in, in the humility and confession that we, we see in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. Because if we refuse to confess our sins, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This humble confession cleans us in God's sight. And so we then follow it with a pronouncement of absolution, of, of absolution and restoration. Proverbs 28, verse 13, we read this. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in 1 John 2, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So because it is true that Jesus died to pay for our sins, and because the mechanism for that is confession and repentance, and because the, the, the method of our worship, the confession of sin, the cleansing liturgy, is such that we confess our sins and stand to receive God's gospel promise that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God is the right answer. Thanks be to God. Look, I was dirty, and now I'm clean. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was ugly, and now I'm prepared to go into the presence of a holy God. Thanks be to God. And as always, this all hinges on the death and sacrifice of Christ at the cross. The one place where it all ultimately takes place. And yet, covenant renewal worship brings us back into peace and fellowship with God. And, in, and every time we come into His presence, we need to, to recognize our inadequacy, our unworthiness. Not because we need to be navel gazers, not because we need to be a downtrodden people always mumbling about how bad we are, but because He promises to forgive our sins if we acknowledge them. And therefore we can move forward from that in the knowledge of His grace and salvation. Boldly entering into the presence of God to be purified and sanctified. So, after our confession of sin and our absolution, we do our catechism quote, back, uh, question and answer. And this is just a brief aside. Both the catechism and the creeds might be considered as much a part of consecration as they are of cleansing. They could, they could go, frankly, they could go in either part of the, either section of, of the worship. They could be, and we do our creed in the consecration, and we do our catechism in the uh, cleansing. Because in a very real sense, the catechisms define what we understand as things that are outside the boundaries of the faith, of our faith. They, they help us clearly delineate what we consider as clean and unclean in the church. What's allowed, what's not allowed. They are part of the fence that hems in what is holy and 
what it, from what is profane. And as such, they assist to maintain the purity of the church. So it fits. It fits in the cleansing portion of scripture. A cleansing, cleansing portion of the covenant renewal worship service. But all that said, cleansing is what happens. Cleansing is what happens, and praise be to God for it. The purpose of, of all of the, that section of the worship is to achieve purity. We have a problem. It doesn't matter if we go through, if we, if we, if we confess our sins and God saves us, or if we are an unbeliever who never walks into the doors of a church. We all have the problem. We need the solution. We need Christ. We have sin and guilt, and we need life and forgiveness. Because the path of the gospel, is, and, and, the, and the path of, the, of that forgiveness is repentance, because repentance leads to salvation. So, when we come to our confession of sin, and when I, or Greg, or, or Cameron, whoever's giving the exhortation, is really hard on sin, and really hard on you, perhaps, if, you, if, you, if it hits you hard, it's, it's because it has to be hard on sin. Because sin is ugly, and we must get rid of it. Our hearts are hardened by sin. But repentance only comes from soft hearts. Hearts that understand the wisdom of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, who says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a, by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. There he just he, he lays out, these are your choices. You, you, can, you can put your blinders on, go party it up, but you're going to end up in that house of death. There's wisdom in understanding the sorrow that sin brings. There's wisdom in contemplating how ugly and nasty and gross it is. But just because we are hard on sin and just because we highlight it and just because we, we nail it, it doesn't mean that sorrow is the end in itself. It's not. Sorrow is not an end in itself. Sorrow is a means to an end. First, Second Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Repentance is the fruit of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is fuel. It is drive. Confession of sin and sorrow over its consequences are motivation for obedience. Sorrow is proof that you understand the morbidity of sin. The depth of our depravity highlights the glory of salvation. Because Jesus doesn't leave you there. 
when you sorrow for your sin, when you repent of it, when you confess it, when you, when you turn to God in humility and confession, He picks you up. He lifts you off the ground. Cleansing makes you get clean. Cleansing cleans you. And, though, and therefore we make an authoritative declaration of assurance when you confess. When, when the church says, therefore your sins are forgiven through Christ, the church is doing that on the grounds of the authority that God has given to her. John 20, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So the church has the right to make this declaration of assurance of salvation, assurance of forgiveness. If you receive these things in faith, if you trust in the gospel, if you trust in the Jesus of the scriptures, if you confess your sins and you turn to him, believing that he is the son of God, that he, God raised him from the dead, and he nailed your sins to the cross through him. Your sins are forgiven. They really are. Praise God. And finally, for those who struggle with assurance, who struggle with this kind of assurance, we have inspired comfort in many of the Psalms. Dwell on it. Psalms 32, Psalm 51. And Psalm 130 are all penitential psalms, psalms that confess sin. Psalm 51, David wrote it after his sin of, of, of uh, stealing Bathsheba from Uriah and then murdering Uriah and getting called out for it. And then he confessed his sin to Nathan, and Nathan said, Nevertheless, you're not going to die. You're, you're because of your humility. You're not going to die because of this. And then David writes Psalm 51. It's a glorious penitential psalm. And we sing it. We sing it as, as our uh, sections of it for our, our, our offertory several, so many times. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Um, there's one other one. can't remember the title right now. <laughs> um, but I'm going to leave you with, with Psalm 32. And just let these words soak in. It's, it's beautiful. The, the, the peace that God has for his people. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. And then the, the mood changes. God starts speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. 
And then it switches back to the psalmist. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. people, a people whom God has called from darkness to light. He has revealed himself in all his glory and majesty in the scriptures and in the world, and he has shown us his love in his son, Jesus Christ, especially at the cross, where he took on our guilt and our shame. And what that means for us is that every lie we ever told Every jealous thought or action, every gossiping remark. He took our hatred and our greed. He took our lust and our laziness. He took our pride and he nailed it to that tree. He shed his blood to cover it and to clothe us with white robes of righteousness. He ransomed us from Satan and death and the world. And he bought us with a price, and he cleansed us so that we might have life. And then he sets us free to give thanks, to worship, to glorify, and to love God with all that we are and all that we have. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.